Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled LDS Female Sexuality, Part 3, originally produced and published by the Mormon Mental Health Podcast. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Going back to this idea of women losing their desire, uh, when it, especially when it's tied to duty, I do get quite a bit of men, especially on my blog, who talk about um, being in a sexless marriage, where they're having sex um, many times, less than 10 times a year, many times for years have gone without any sexual encounter and the frustration that goes along with that. And I see this issue is um, complicated in the sense that because we are in a benevolent patriarchy, which is good in a sense, mm-hmm. better than a, a full-blown patriarchy, these men are not, you know, forcing themselves. Of course, they're not being coercive. They're not being manipulative. They're very much respecting their their wife's desire not to have sex. And yet they're completely feeling um, basically abandoned, you know, in yes. their, in their sexual intimacy. And, and, and it affects, of course, the rest of their marriage as well. So yes. with this idea of how do you help women kind of navigate this idea of compromise, which can easily go down the slope of duty to um, also realizing, you know, how do we meet both of the needs in this partnership? Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of easy answers for this. I wish there were because it's such a heartbreaking problem. I think that um, that in the realm of a sexless marriage, I would first say that accommodation of that sexless stance is not um, is often undertaken thinking that eventually she will see what a nice guy I am and how much I've tolerated her anxieties about sex, and she will eventually turn to me, be more comfortable, feel more accepted, and and you know, that we will eventually have this thing that she says she also wants but never gets around to wanting. Um, I I do think that the more that the higher desire partner goes into a stance of accommodation, um, the less that things get mobilized or looked at or, you know, move forward because part of the way that she's managing her anxiety is to... um, keep the marriage sexless or to keep it very, very limited amount of sex. And so she's not looking to really resolve it. It's kind of resolved for her. So usually it's the one who wants sex more that has to really instigate a process or an examination of what's happening. I I think that, um, meeting in the middle as in, you know, you need to do it a few more times a year so that he's happy. doesn't really work because this isn't what the men or the higher desire people really want. What they really want is a soulful engagement with their spouse. It's not that they just want her to give it up more frequently. <laughs> they, they want to connect with her in this emotional, spiritual way. And I think that um, what that requires is that she's able to bring, or the lower desire partner or she, if we're going to go with the stereotype, needs to bring more of her whole self to that interaction and to trust it. And I think that you can't, unless the lower desire partner really wants to do that work and wants to reclaim this part of themselves and reinvest in this relationship that has been more comfortable for them to disengage from, there's not going to be any real progress. When someone's coming to therapy because they know he's really had it and they want to just kind of 
say, you know, I really want to want it and I'm trying and I want you to just believe that and then leave me alone. <laughs> Nothing's going to change. I mean, she's really got to want it for herself, I think, for something to ultimately shift in the marriage. And yeah, it, I think it puts, this is, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say it puts the higher desire partner in a difficult position because she, you know, it's dependent upon how much she wants to shift it. You know, it's not if it's really going to be something that's much more bonding for the two of them. And, you know, a lot of times it is about looking at what's happening in the larger relationship to understand what's inhibiting her desire, what undermines it, what are the things that he might be doing that interfere with the space that she needs. Because oftentimes a higher desire partner, his desire dominates the relationship so much that there's no room for her to want. It's always about managing this kind of constant pressure. And the more he feels like she doesn't want it, the more he desires it, the more that desire, that longing sort of sits on the relationship in a way that's oppressive to her sexual desire. It's that cycle again. Yes, that cycle, exactly. Yes, that feeds upon itself. Yeah, so it's really about breaking those cycles and, and helping people regulate their own feelings more um, within themselves so that they're, again, that differentiation that you talked about, so that they're more able to engage in, the, in their partnership in a more authentic way, in a way that allows more space for one another. So. Yeah, and I think that this is where patriarchy um also is a disservice and marginalizes men because I think part of the message of patriarchy is that men are the sexual beings and so then women are left feeling like well that's all they care about all he wants is sex and the man is left um, really not looked at as a whole you know he's just kind of he's objectified now as this kind of sexual beast and that's that's the only thing that matters and I think there's some very interesting research coming out showing that um, even when men have sex if it's not emotionally attached, it's unsatisfying for them as well. Absolutely. And so that's really blowing, you know, the top off of all these assumptions that I think we as women sometimes make. Along yes. along with that, what I'm finding, too, that many of these men are writing in about in this situation is that their women, their, their wives, have tied sexuality very much to the idea of procreation and having children. And so mm-hmm. while they were having children... Um, you know, they would be willing to be sexual. Now they're, they've hit their 50s or their 60s mm-hmm. and um, no longer see a purpose for sexuality and are kind of hiding behind, again, the marginalization of, well, again, you're carnal. That's all you care about. You're somehow right. beneath me because you still care about this. Right. Absolutely. So I, I think it's really sad when men get um, reduced to, you know, being hormonal, natural man taking over, you know, this is all they think about, and not seeing behind that the longing, the desire that's healthy, that's important, that's about really feeling bonded as a couple. And, you know, I think similar to what you were saying, I think that, you know, many people come in, they say, I had so much desire before we got married, as if there's news to that, meaning so many people come in and say, I had it all then, then we got married and it was all gone. What's the matter? Um, what happened? And I would say the context of pre-marriage and the context of marriage are vastly different contexts. And that is premaritally, we have all of the space to desire. 
you know, love is in the wanting. You don't quite have the person yet. You don't know if they really love you, if they really care about you. So there's structural distance. He drops you off. He goes back to his apartment. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of space to want. You know, there's a, there is still an adventure ahead of you to see if you're going to ultimately conquer this person or not. Once you've, <laughs> once you've conquered, uh, so, so what I would say is your sexual desire is happening to you in that context. It's like a hormonally drenched state with n enormous amounts of fantasy about who the other person is. <laughs> Which is and, not always reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a state of mind that really fosters sexual desire. Once you get married, um, that structural distance is gone. He's lying there next to you naked with just his socks on. It's not that enticing, right? So it's, um, you know, there's, there's, it's, can you want what you already have, as one theorist talks about it. And I think that, you know, the challenge in marital sexuality is that in order, you have to really foster it and nurture desire, because it's not going to happen to you anymore. But in order to do that, you have to really be comfortable with being a sexual being. You have to be comfortable with introducing sexual novelty. We have to be comfortable talking about what turns you on and what appeals to you and, and feel like I can share it and it doesn't make me a bad woman. And be playful. And I be, be yes. yeah. I, I can be playful. I can have pleasure. And all this is an important part of being married and being human and being whole. And that's, I mean, that's that is, the biggest lie there is, okay, so therefore there must be something wrong in my relationship. So I'll leave this relationship and go look for another one. And, and then it repeats the whole same thing you've said that, yeah, of course, at first it's very exciting. It's again, that whole, you, you right. want what you can't have or you, what you don't yet have. And, and then yet you marry that second person and you're finding yourself in the same situation. So right, right. I always say, do you want to figure this out with, with Joe or Brian or <laughs> who yeah. do you want? You're going to have to figure it out. But <laughs> right. so who exactly. do you want to figure it out with? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's right. Oh, um, that's right. Not that I want. I mean, it's not always that simple, but. That's, yeah, that's kind but of... absolutely. That's what I often say to couples is they're facing the difficulties of the marriage and saying, you know, you have an opportunity to learn you know, to, to, to grow up essentially, to learn how to be more whole as a person and to be more differentiated and to know how to really love another person. And you, and it's painful, but part of that pain is an important part of the growth process. And, you know, you can do it now or you can go leave this relationship and do that work with someone else, but it is work that you need to do. Right. Okay. So within, I think LDS culture, there's, still a stigma of going to a mental health professional, although that's becoming less so. Um, so, but added to that, then going to a sex therapist, I think is even, you know, five steps even further. <laughs> yes. So, uh, I often hear concerns, um, from people about going to therapy in general, you know, that if, especially if they're not LDS, that they're going to somehow not, um, respect my values or take my values into consideration. I think with sex therapy, people are very much concerned that they will be um, introduced to things that they don't even want to think about or that they'll be asked to do things that they don't agree with, such as masturbation, looking at pornography, um, exploring fantasies, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what is your take on the whole sex therapy field? I know you're not necessarily a certified sex therapist, but you're mm -hmm. definitely doing mm -hmm. what would right, be considered some sex therapy. So mm -hmm. um, Right, like... Um 
Yes, I would say that what I look at is the sort of re interpersonal and psychological elements that inhibit and foster good sexual relationships. But, you know, in terms of, I understand that anxiety, and I think that's um, partly why Mormons tend to want to go to a Mormon therapist, is they're really anxious, especially in the realm of sexuality, about what we've often learned is the debauchery and chaos that's outside of um, <laughs> of the church. <laughs> and so we can be really anxious and anxious that someone's not going to respect our values or understand them or devalue them. And what I would say is that I think that's, you know, legitimate to be, have concerns about it. I think when you find a good therapist, they, a way of knowing that they're good is that they really understand the cultural context from which you are operating. And not only are they understanding of it and seek to understand it um, so that they can understand what your challenges mean to you, but they're also seeking to understand it so they can use it as a resource for you also. And that's just good practice. And if someone's not hearing what your perspectives are and, and how you feel, then it means they may not be so great. Like one person said to me, she went into a therapist and offered her coffee and and then they were a couple and they said well no we don't drink coffee we're LDS this is part of you know why we're coming we're having challenges in this way and every week he would offer coffee over and over <laughs> which was to say he wasn't picking up on no you know we're saying to you that we are different and we need you to hear it and understand it and so needless to say he wasn't a very he wasn't a very sensitive therapist to who they were so I think there's reason to trust that, that you can get good help outside of the church, but you also want to be aware of how in tune they are with who you are and what you, what you're, what you're struggling with and what you're comfortable with doing or not doing. And I think that's the catch-22 that both the therapist and the client are in um, because as therapists, part of our job is to challenge people um, you know, as far as, you know, if you say, for instance, well, I'm uncomfortable with that, therefore, we can't even mm -hmm. discuss that. That's not really the, <laughs> the therapy, right. you know, the therapist is going to want to explore that, you know, well, why are you uncomfortable? And yes. are those good reasons to be uncomfortable? Or yes. is that healthy? And, and there are things that people are uncomfortable with that really aren't that healthy. Right. And so um, I think that's the catch 22 people find themselves in. I often find LD, LDS uh, both individuals and couples coming to see me and saying, oh, yes, I came to see you because my last therapist said yes. this, and I yes. couldn't believe they said it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, well, I would say that, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, right. now where do we go right. from here? So <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, you're right. And I think being LDS, you're really at an advantage because you can, you know the, the structure of the faith so well that you can find those healthier constructs within it, you know, using the spirit to guide your decisions, understanding mother in heaven or the body and its and its celebration in the church, that as a non-LDS therapist, you just wouldn't know how to look for those healthier themes right within the church to help people embrace them more completely. So, um, right. So and then they can't, they can't discount you as quickly, I think, you know, because if, if it's an, if it's a non LDS therapist, who's telling you anything along those lines, you can say, well, they're not LDS, so they don't understand. Yep. Whereas right. I think with an LDS therapist, all of a sudden you're having to say, oh, well, this person's within my faith structure and they're looking at this differently than I would. And so why is that? Or, uh, so that's, that's maybe right. one of the pros of seeing an LDS therapist. There's cons too. So, I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's definitely pros and cons to, to everything. Yes. Yes. 
Okay, so going back to sex therapy in particular, um, what are your thoughts about some of the uh, sex therapy things that maybe would be considered more controversial within LDS culture, such as, um, you know, having a couple use manual stimulation to help with issues anywhere from anorgasmia to um, erectile dysfunction to whatever? Well, um, I guess I would say I, I think that it's important um, if it's what a couple needs. I mean, I think if you hold that your goal is a comfortable, functional, sexual relationship between a couple, um, because my personal belief is that's extremely important, then whatever um, assistance a couple may need to achieve that is certainly open to consider in my mind, or at least that I will bring it up for a couple to um, think about if they're comfortable with it and if they think it would be helpful to them. You know, for some women who aren't able to achieve orgasm, it's because their anxiety is, is just simply too high in the context of the relationship and because they don't know what it is that they need. And so um, in some cases I've, you know, suggested that women take time alone to get to know their own body's capacity for orgasm and arousal and so on and and to do it um, without the husband there. And, you know, that's only if they both feel comfortable with that idea theologically or that they don't feel that it's somehow um, sinful to do that. But, you know, again, I'm always saying, that justifying it in the frame of it blessing your marital relationship. And how can you help a spouse know what you need if you don't know what it is you need? So I think it's, ex not only is it like, okay, I think it's extremely important to know your own body, to embrace your own body, to know what it is that it's capable of. And, and then from there to be able to bring that into a loving relationship, you have to know yourself first in all, in all respects. Yeah, and I love the term you use uh, of that being relationality, that, you know, that self-stimulation, masturbation, however people want to term that word, is um, in the context of relationality can be a very useful tool. Yes. And I think Absolutely. also um, this idea that we have um, in our own, again, in our own doctrinal type of teachings that sexuality is very clear in the manuals that that's between a man and a woman. And as long mm -hmm. as, you know, neither are feeling coerced or forced into anything or are, you know, deeply uncomfortable with something that right. you can be, whatever it is you decide to do and to use as a couple is up to you and your right. spouse. Right. Absolutely. So, and I you think, um, you know, I actually gave a presentation in a Relief Society once and, and made the horrible mistake of, in response to a anonymous question about what to do if you've never had an orgasm, I basically gave that as the response, and it, it, it there was a bit of a stir. <laughs> um, but, um, <clears throat> but you know, because that can be distressing for people. But you know, I read in a book that called, uh, and they are not ashamed. I think that's the name of it by Laura Brotherson. She refers to self-stimulation as, I think self-educating it's very delicate the way she approaches it but she's basically saying women really need to know their own bodies before they can help their husbands know what it is that they need to be aroused and and to achieve orgasm so you know i, I think it's 
it's fully legitimate and important. Yeah, and again, in the context of, of not being within secrecy and shame, I think where masturbation yeah. can become such an issue in marriages is yes. when one person is, you know, ha- ha- falling into that behavior without the other person knowing, and then that person yes. feels betrayed and trust issues ensue and, you know, ongoing, yeah. ongoing. So Exactly. And so, exactly. I make a distinction between that and someone who's secretively looking at pornography and masturbating as a way of you know, bringing their sexuality outside of the relationship and in a way that's destructive to the relationship. So absolutely, I make a real distinction with people around that. Right. And that goes back to your relationality, that anything that has to do with bringing you closer together and uh, can be part of what I like to call your sexual repertoire. Exactly. So, um, what about this issue that we don't tend to, um, look at women who maybe are the ones who are looking at pornography or women who have the higher sex drive that so many women I think that are in these positions can feel so marginalized and so alone or even feel the words that I get on my blog is I feel freakish I feel weird right what's wrong with me yeah right well absolutely so there's this way in which the culture doesn't name consistent with, you know, my dissertation is this idea that we don't own that women are sexual. And so we almost deny that women have, could have uh, sexual challenges in the sense of, you know, being sex addicts or having any of those kinds of problems. But of course, then when women are the ones that are the higher desire partner or are tempted by pornography or whatever, (laughs) it's like a double whammy. It's like they know that it must not be right because it's not right for the men and yet it's not even being spoken about. And so how do you even say to your bishop that you're having trouble with this? Because it's it, it means you're, you know, you're off the charts weird. And I think that's really unfortunate because, um, you know, men and women are sexual beings and some women are you know, I would. I think I read a statistic that said in 25% of marriages, women are the higher desire partner. I know a theorist that I read, David uh, Schnarch, in his experience, it's half and half, that he has the experience that half of the couples that come in, the woman's the higher desire partner. And, but people just don't talk about it. And so the stereotypes persist. I, I think, you know, I think I said this earlier in the interview, my experience is that it's always the higher desire partner is the man in, in the most of the couples I've seen. But I also wonder, because of the shame going both directions, not just for the women for being the higher desire partner, but also for the men and being the low desire partner, because it's so inconsistent with their notions of what they're supposed to be. So they may reach out for help less frequently. Right. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit earlier. You mentioned David Schnark, and he has written Passionate Marriage, which is a book I highly recommend. It has some material in it that I could see some LDS couples may be uncomfortable with, but I think overall it's a fabulous book. Yes, um, right. And he makes the, his central premise is that marriage is the best context for the most soulful sex because here is a realm in which you can bring your whole self and really challenge yourself to grow. And so I think that as you say, there's a lot of um, of his assumptions are consistent with LDS assumptions. Right. Yeah, he's just very upfront about how he talks about it. Yes, <laughs> yes. Very blunt. Yeah. Um, so yeah. the 
other thing I was going to ask too, then kind of along the lines of, you know, using masturbation or self-stimulation, um, within the relational aspect of the of the marriage is that sometimes I find this to be helpful even with the drive issues that mm-hmm. if if the couple can um, say you know what yeah I'm not really in the mood but I understand you're in the mood so let's work through this where you're able to do mm-hmm. that for yourself but w- within the context of my being available emotionally or mm-hmm. um whether I'm right. at your side when you do that, or I just know you're doing that, or and this yeah. sometimes can take off the pressure of having to have similar sex drives, which is practically impossible. Yes, I and I fully support that idea. I mean, I know in my dissertation research, um, some women specifically said that they felt that was wrong, and I think that's something people say in the church a lot because it's it's not relational. But I disagree that it's not relational. It's it's a functional use of of masturbation to enhance the comfort in the couple. So, so yeah, I, and I think it can be a quite erotic experience to watch or to be willing to allow your spouse to watch that process. That's a pretty intimate, vulnerable position to be in. Um, yes, absolutely. And when people say they're uncomfortable with that, that's one of those examples I would say, well, I think the discomfort there is you're uncomfortable with your vulnerability, which that's the kind of discomfort you want to challenge. That's right. I fully agree. Absolutely. So um, what about your thoughts about erotica versus pornography? You know, I don't have strong, well-articulated thoughts on this. So so let me see where I go with it. Um, I guess what I would say is that I think in a couple what's important is thinking about what allows me to feel sexual to feel turned on, you know, that, that encouraging desire may very well be important for me, especially if I'm the lower desire partner. And <clears throat> thinking about what are the ways that I can encourage that, that I, you know, if I can hold as a, as a premise that being sexual and being able to engage in this language of, of love and affection and play with my spouse is good, what are the supports that I need to um, help me move into that realm. And I think there's quite a range for uh, men and women in terms of what they need and what allows them to do it. And, you know, if, in speaking about fantasy, I think fantasy can be, <clears throat> you know, the whole range of, you know, I want them to come in and help the kids and then just touch me but not have any pressure and walk past me and then go work on the dishes. And, you know, they can have, they can have these whole scenarios that are highly... Um, erotic for them, this idea of being taken care of and his desire not being too dominant and him being a little elusive and all this. And then there's people who have fantasies where they really want to be dominated and they want him to be the powerful, you know, um, character in the, in the sexual interaction. And, and, you know, they want to be tied up, you know, there's all these kinds of things that people will want. And I think, you know, that it's okay to to bring that into the couple and to think about what does that mean and how does that help me. I, there's one couple that um, I've worked with where he needed no fantasy. I mean, his only fantasy was to be sexual with her, which, which was largely in the fantasy realm when I first started working with them. And, um, and her fantasies were much more, uh, she had a lot more need to be lifted out of the mundane and the everyday. She just had a hard time feeling sexual when, you know, there were toys on the floor and she could hear the, you know, baby in the other room. 
And so he, you know, they're a good LDS couple, but he started, uh, he found something online called Lusty Library. And uh, <laughs> he uh, would download these stories and he would read her a bedtime story. And this was extremely helpful for her. And these were, you know, just stories that would arouse her, that would allow her to sort of move into a different realm with him. And the way he would read it to her, it was just a total turn on for her and extremely helpful. And it was actually really brought, she talked a lot about feeling closer to him for being willing to be this flexible with her and to sort of engage in something that she really needed and that for so long in the marriage, she'd felt defective for not being able to um, elicit her own arousal. Yes. Exactly. And so to, to feel teamed up with him and to feel that they had an alliance around this, that, you know, that they were helping each other. And this meant enormous amount to her. And uh, as their sexual relationship was improving, even though she was, you know, they were um, getting regular downloads from Lusty Library. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, it. <laughs> they, <laughs> um, they, were, they were coming together more and more emotionally and physically. Right. So, so I guess I would say I don't I don't have like one stance on it. I I would say I remain open to it. I do think that one of the challenges with pornography is that it sort of snuffed out our cultural our sexual imaginations in a lot of ways and does have a lot of problems associated with it, especially the secrecy and the ways in which it's used as an escape from the relationship. I, I guess I would say in general my I'm not a big fan of pornography um but I would say that I am open to the ways in which couples can use outside sources to facilitate connection between them. But I'm a big fan of sex being about um, connection, intimacy, sharing of your whole self, include, including your erotic mind, um, and including those things that you feel uncomfortable with within yourself even, and having it really be safe to be with one another in this way. Yeah, I think that's that's very well said. I, I agree with you. I'm not a big fan of pornography either, especially even just from the industry standpoint and, yes. and some of the stories that, you know, circulate around that. But, um, but you know, I think erotica can be such a broader subject, you know, from poetry to, you know, like you're saying, uh, literature to even music. Um, yes. It, there's so many things that can just elicit those feelings of natural arousal that um, don't need to fall, I think, into the realm of pornography. I think sometimes, however, in the LDS church, we struggle with knowing how to create that that line between yes. those two. And sometimes we um, unfortunately don't uh, um, enjoy a lot of good erotica that I think is is valuable because we put it into the realm of pornography. Um. What about sexual toys, vibrators, dildos, um, you know, lubricants, massage oils, all these different kinds of things that that people can use also as tools? What are your thoughts about that? You know, again, I would, you know, I'm going to sound redundant. I would say the same thing. I mean, if I'm holding as the central premise of whatever couples need to be able to feel sexual and to be together in this way and to feel a deepening of their alliance, a deepening of their bond, I think that's, that then all of that is open for consideration. And, um, you know, that part of it is that couples, 
how to say it, I think part of the challenge of a good sexual relationship is managing that maybe people have differences where someone wants to introduce something like a vibrator and the other one feels very uncomfortable with it. And trying to navigate those differences and understanding what it means to each person and how much do you stretch yourself and how much do you sim simply set a limit and say, I'm not willing to introduce something into what we have. And I think those are just uh, individual challenges, meaning individual to, to a specific to a couple, yeah, to each couple, to, to navigate and to sort out um, between themselves and or with a therapist. Right. Yeah, I think that's that ongoing compromises is yes. obviously important. Well, why don't you bring us home with some closing thoughts and just kind of, you know, what would be maybe your, if, if you could only say a few things, what would be the main um, themes that yeah. you'd like to leave us with? Well, I guess that I'm, I'm very grateful for the gift of sexuality. I think it's a wonderful resource for us and, and underutilized in our faith. And th this gift from God is highly underutilized um, to bring couples together, to enhance their lives, to help them feel deeply bonded with the person that they love and that they've committed their, their lives to. And, you know, that I really hope to um, be a part of helping more couples have that as a resource in their lives. And, you know, I certainly hope that that shifts within the church in general also, that we can celebrate it more openly and not be so afraid of sexuality. Using and really our, our, our own doctrinal themes. Yes. Which I think and, are and very pro-sex. That's right. And giving that to our children at the same time that we really are helping them navigate an, a highly sexualized culture that really gives distorted notions of sexuality, in my opinion. So on the one hand, I think sex is, has the possibility of being a very beautiful, sacred experience between couples. And what makes it beautiful and sacred is this ability to fully share your whole self with another person, to, to take that kind of healthy risk and to have it be met. Th that's what makes sex beautiful. But you can do all kinds of things with sex and you can make it horrible. I mean, you can be destructive and highly damaging. And so we really need the message that it has the potential to be an amazing thing, but it also has the potential to really be hurtful. So we have to handle it with a lot of wisdom. And kids need parents' guidance. And if parents are so anxious that they have the talk and they're not able to stay in an ongoing conversation with their children, they're doing them a deep disservice, not preparing them to manage the pressures through adolescence, but also not preparing them to manage the realities of a marriage. And it's, it's just, we need to do a better job as parents and teachers in the church. Yeah, so the concept of opposition in all things, I think is what you were first referring to with both the, the beauties and the the struggles that sexuality can bring and then um, this idea of I think we do focus so much on adolescent sexuality when we are parenting uh, mm -hmm. and yet we miss out I mean that's really only what five to ten years of their lives and um, okay. how about the rest that's of the right. 40 years you know are we preparing them for that that's right thank you for listening if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events, information about her free Facebook group, and more. 
Thank you for being here. 